In the 1980s, Aya Nishitani wrote a trilogy of stories about a student who writes a computer program that summons demons and the chaos that ensues afterwards. The first novel, Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai, ended up being incredibly popular, so almost immediately companies were looking into cashing on its success. Little did they know that they would all be starting a multimedia franchise that would still exist almost 40 years later. Today we're going to look back at the Megami Tensai series by telling you the story of its beginning along with the people and companies that created it. So stick around and join us as we negotiate with the devil on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 149th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we will tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just one topic relevant to this week. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai, a pair of video games released in 1987 for both personal computers and the Nintendo Famicom. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always talking to demons. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob what do the demons say to you? Well, we mostly just talk about our days. So they tell me about the brimstone and the fire, and I tell them about like what I dealt with at work. You know, phone calls, emails, work I had to do. Also, just... fire and brimstone. I mean, sometimes it depends on the day. You know, sometimes you, you get a little down in the dirt. <laughs> sometimes you get a little down in the dirt. Sometimes it's downright hell. Damn straight. That's work. Work will do that to you sometimes. Hey, but we do what we love and we love what we do and it's not always so bad. Frankly, the demons talk to me all the time. Well, you can't call that your customers that, Dave. That's just mean. They tell me to do things. Oh, yeah? What do they tell you to do? Talk about this game? Yes. Oh, well, before we get into that, Dave, what have you been playing this week? Rocket League. That's it? Stardew Valley. Ah, there we go. That's one I haven't heard in a while. Arcade Paradise. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, Nessie, I think it's how it's pronounced. The only okay. Thing only thing I've purchased in the which call it, um, Steam Summer Sale, and I think that will do it. That's actually a pretty open week of things that I am not familiar with, except for Rocket League and Stardew. Yeah, I I needed. I I think I said last week it's been really hard for me to like focus on stuff, and Stardew is like the right amount of casual, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm agreeing with you on that one. It is very so, cash. Um, and the other games are just like my usual like. Necessity is like. Terraria sort of kind of and arcade paradise is a like a tycoon arcade tycoon game 
Uh, see, I would have thought it was like the Bandai Namco arcade gallery or something like that. No, that was nope. my first guess. Nope, it's a it's a arcade tycoon game. So, what have you been playing? Gotcha. Well, this week has been RuneScape and Rocket League, Elite Dangerous, and Car Mechanic Simulator. I think that's it. Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, I I uh, I've been eyeing BMG again. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I love BMG. I don't have it, but no, I've seen enough videos and it. it's it's been on my list for a while. I just been waiting for a sale, and every time it goes on one, I'm not ready to buy it. So uh, it just sits on my list. You know that there's that car tycoon game called Automation or Automaton or something like that. Yeah, and it works with BeamNG, so the cars that you create in that tycoon game you can import into beam okay stop that is so cool i, did not I know, know that. i've been like eyeing them as a pair it's like 40 bucks for the pair and i'm like oh man you can make you can design your cars which is the whole draw to that game and then import them into beam <laughs> uh that might be something i have to do now damn it oh man Oh, man. All right. So Digital Devil Story, Megami Tensai. Have you ever stumbled across a Megami Tensai game? Uh, not by name. Uh, maybe I've seen them from other things, but if that's actually the name of it, then I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yes, that is the name of the main series, Megami Tensai. Yeah, nope. I can't say I've ever seen that one or heard that one before. Well, get ready to learn a few things, because I'm not surprised at all. Wow. I... Are, are you ever surprised? You actually are often surprised with what I haven't seen. Yeah, I, I am. So I am surprised by what you have, haven't seen. I, especially for, and I guess it's just because, like, I spend a lot of time reading news and watching videos and just generally like learning about this. This is obviously my thing. And so like their series, even if I haven't played, I kind of know about. Although I have played games in this series. I'm always surprised when you haven't at least tripped on things, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. If Let's Game It Out or a channel like that hadn't played it, I wouldn't know about it. And they mostly true. do new games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not, you're not the news type like I am for this for video games. So I'm no, usually the one. I am not. I'm usually the one that goes, "Did you see the trailer for this? I didn't even know they were making that. Oh my yep. god, that's how that's, it goes. That is exactly it. Every time. Every, Every time. time. Oh yeah. Oh well. So the Digital Devil Story Trilogy. There really isn't much that we know about the childhood of where the inspiration for this game came from. It's a trilogy of books called the Digital Devil Story. And they were written by Aya Nishitani. We don't really know much about his childhood. We can kind of put bits and pieces together. When you look at early interviews, um, you can see where there are some influences that inspirations rather for this this video game, for these books, for the what's called the Digital Devil Saga. We know, for instance, that Nishitani's favorite author is a Japanese science fiction, fantasy and horror author named Ryo Hanamura. 
uh, not familiar uh, myself with Hanmura. He only had a few selected works that were translated over to English. Uh, in later years, the Digital Devil stories, the trilogy, has been fan translated, but still hasn't gotten a big translation, which blows my mind this many years later, but such is life. Um, in any case, Hanmura was a really well-known science fiction, horror like Japanese author. He wrote stories that showed a really deep mistrust and authority and the establishment. He was really big about the concept of consumer deception and the way that we were destroying our planet. Basically he wrote a story called blood ties to the stone that he ended up winning an award for. It is a story that suggests that the folk tales of vampires and werewolves are just garbled references to immortality seeking what he called secret masters and that their vampiric craving for blood is just the result of a virus that they have that is sexually transmitted mm. and the end stage of this disease puts the host into a petrified like crystallis state and then they emerge from that that crystallis after several centuries as an immortal, um, which basically makes people who want to be immortal most notably rich people. Uh, they want to be immortal, so they go out of their way to acquire the infection. They conceal it, and then they build wealth and security and protection around them as they go into the chrysalis stage to, you know, become immortal after several, several, uh, several centuries. Does that make sense? Yeah. So rich people want to be immortal. So they find vampires, they build all their wealth around protecting them, you know, just so they can be a chrysalis for several centuries and become immortal rich people. It's always about rich people. It, yeah, I mean, they have a lot of money to make themselves known. They do have a lot of money to make themselves known. Nishitani was also a big fan of American supernatural fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft. We know H.P. Lovecraft. We've, we've covered other uh, game developers and authors who are big fans of Lovecraft. Lovecraft writes around the concept of cosmicism. Cosmicism. It is the idea that humanity is an insignificant part of the cosmos and could be swept away at any moment, which is, which is kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's a philosophy. Like we're, we're not the center of the universe anymore. Anyway, we also know that Nishitani was interested in astrology as a child, and through astrology, he was introduced to Western black magic. Now, this is actually where a key concept of the digital devil story came from. Black magic, as Nishitani sees it, is limited by the position of the planets. It's kind of well known, you know, not always the planets, but... You could only cast a spell during a full moon. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Um, so yes, so black magic is limited by the position of the moon and the planets. And on a PC, you can simulate things however you want. So he got the idea that practicing black magic on a PC would be an interesting concept. Hmm. Kind of is, actually. Well, yeah, which leads us to the Digital Devil Story Trilogy. So they are a series of science fiction novels. The first one was published in 86. I think they were 86, 87. I got it written down here. They are known best for fusing science fiction, horror, and Japanese mythology together. There are three main novels in the trilogy. Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai, Digital Devil Story Warrior of the Demon City, and Digital Devil Story Goddess Reincarnation. So the first novel, Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai, was published in 1986. It follows the story of a high school student named Akemi Nakajima who creates a computer program capable of summoning demons. However, the program grows awry and Akemi inadvertently releases demons into the real world. As chaos ensues, he and his friends must find a way to stop the demons and to save humanity. Pretty cool concept. The second novel, which was Warrior of the Demon City, came out in 87. It continues Akimi's story. He now possesses the power to transform into a devil, and as he delves deeper into the demonic realm, he has to confront powerful adversaries and unravel the mysteries of his own origins. And then the last one, the last novel, which was published in 1989, was Digital Devil Story Goddess Reincarnation. And you get a whole new person for this one. It's a college student named Masakado Tyra and Tyra becomes involved in a battle between the forces of good and evil. And basically uh, Masakado's destiny intertwines with a, with the goddess uh, Izanami and together they have to confront ancient evils and prevent the destruction of the world. You know, I'm definitely getting uh, some vibes of, uh devil may cry from this like the whole fighting demons and then being able to transform into a demon it's uh definitely very similar in those aspects it is but different mythology yeah no absolutely It, it it's uh because um it actually merges mythologies it's pretty cool so the first one i don't know if it's the game or the book uh, the demon that gets released is actually Loki. Okay. And Set, the Japanese, the Japanese god Set. So those are the two, those are the two, like demons slash gods that play a factor in the first book, which is kind of cool. Or game, I can't remember which. Anyways, yes. So the first novel was a major success. So he sits down, Nishitani sits down with his publisher, Takuma Shoten, and they want to turn the books into a multimedia series. Their idea was that it would first begin with an OVA, an original video animation, that retold the events of the first novel, and while doing so, they wanted to create a video game that tied into it. They took this concept and they went 
to none other than Nintendo. Who do you go but one of the biggest, the biggest Japanese video game company. But Nintendo turns it down because, frankly, there's a lot of mature elements in the story. And Nintendo didn't do mature in the 80s at all. At all. We've covered that before. If it had anything mature, they they shunned, they shunned it. I mean, I feel it's pretty much the same now. There's not a whole lot of maturity. Not to say that, like... Oh, no, I'd beg to differ. I mean, they turned down all mature games. You know, we talked about it... God, one of the earliest episodes where in the SNES Mortal Kombat, which was the one of the earliest times that this concert were in its head, they went as far as to change the blood to a green color so it wasn't offensive, like violent and offensive. But for the longest time, if like any type of like sexuality or really rough, like violence, like extreme violence, Nintendo turned it down completely. All through the Nintendo and Super Nintendo era, they wanted to be known as the company that was family friendly. And they went out of their way to make sure that nothing ever gave the perception of otherwise. I wouldn't say that they would have ever calmed down until, I mean, N64 is, you know, on the, on the, is when they started to maybe let it in. I mean, very much so. And then from the GameCube on, they got there. But like the fact that we have like doom on the switch. I mean, that would have never happened back then. It didn't happen back then, frankly. You know what I mean? No, you got a point there. I guess I wasn't thinking of some of those games, but then again, with the Nintendo 64 banjo and Kazooie is a perfect example or conquers bad fur day rather. Um, Very much. Yeah. That's when, yeah. So that era, the N64 era is when they finally let, 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 let go basically. But even still, they were like, those are rarities. I mean, I, I, th- those are rarities. You know, N64, you started to see it with the GameCube. And then they kind of went back to it. I feel like they went back to it for the Wii, but for the Switch, they finally decided that we have to play ball with everyone else. I genuinely feel this is the first generation, the Switch is the first generation where Nintendo is, is on a level playing field in terms of its gaming library for both hardcore and casual gamers. So... But anyway, Nintendo turns it down. So, of course, they go and they start pitching it to other publishers. The license to develop a game based on the first novel, it ended up being simultaneously acquired by two separate companies at the same time. Atlas, who had applied through Namco and Telnet Japan. Now, the two companies were willing to work on the same project, but they wanted to make products that were different from one another they want to differentiate differentiate themselves from one another so what ended up happening is there are two very distinct versions of video games made off of the first novel which is digital devil story megami tensai the version for personal computers is an action role-playing game which plays from a top-down perspective you control Nakajima and you explore a labyrinth. You explore basically a labyrinth like dungeon that's populated by enemies. So as an action role playing game, combat plays out in real time. Nakajima fights demons using either short range melee attacks or range magic attacks. And each section of the dungeon ends in a powerful boss encounter. And frankly, 
no one remembers much of anything about the PC version because it never amounted to anything and we've never really seen a game like it in the series ever again. Hmm. Now the other version made by Atlas Atlas that's the version worth talking about. Its developer Atlas began as a company on the 7th of April 1986. They were a video game developer of computer games for other companies. In January of 1987, Atlas started selling amusement equipment and it expanded into the sale of karaoke equipment of March of 1989. So that's what it was doing as it's making this game. In case you didn't know anything else about Atlas, they didn't release a video game under their own name until 1989, and that was Puzzle Boy for the Game Boy. They started making arcades in the arcade industry in the 90s. Its first arcade video game was called Blazion in 1992. And in 1995, they launched a cabinet called Print Club. Print Club, which is Purikura. It was an arcade cabinet that they partnered with Sega for. It was a photo sticker booth that produces selfie photos. So a lot of your photo booths that you see in arcades are this print club made by Atlas. This was conceived by an Atlas employee in 94. Initially, the big bosses at Atlas were really reluctant about the idea, but later they decided to go ahead with it. And so they released Purakura to the world in February of 95. And initially it was only at game arcades, but then they started to expand to other locations like fast food shops, train stations, karaoke uh, establishment, bowling alleys. And why I'm bringing up little fun fact is these selfie these sticker booths these photo sticker booths are one of the origins believed to be one of the origins for modern selfie culture because they became really popular across use in eastern asia and they kind of spread out from there and so that's that's a little fun fact if you want to know where we believe modern selfie culture came from these little selfie photo photo sticker booths are kind of kind of where where it's believed to have begun that's a very interesting fact and not something I would have ever correlated. I thought it was yeah. more of just uh, cell phones with cell phones. Yeah. Yeah. So for Atlas, Megami Tensai, its spinoffs and Purikura are pretty much its best known products. Nowadays, Atlas is still producing these games, but it has since actually been purchased by Sega and it operates as one of the subsidiaries. So, you know, Rob, it had to have been nice being purchased by Sega and finally having the backing of a company that has all the resources and tools that they needed to be successful at their craft, you know? Yeah, I would definitely say so. It's uh, helpful. It's very helpful. And speaking of tools, I can't even begin to tell you how great it's been to use Zencaster to record our podcasts. Uh, finding this recording tool has made recording whether or not it's just the two of us or there's four of us, it doesn't matter. It makes it an absolute breeze, you know? Indeed it does, Dave. It's made a lot of problems easy. I know. Remember how we did it in the beginning with that Discord bot that always seemed to have problems? It just it didn't connect part of the time. It was very frustrating. And then there was that one time that we recorded a whole episode only to find out that the bot was disconnected and didn't catch any of it not a single bit of it 
man, I wish I could remember what episode that was. All I, all, do you remember that? I remember it happening, but if you asked me the episode again, I wouldn't know. So yeah, yeah it just sucked because it was a lot of, a lot of work. All I remember is being angry that we had to record twice. And that is what prompted us to start searching for a new recording tool. And that brought us over here to Zencaster. One of the things I like most about Zencaster is how easy it makes it to record the show. We just have to give a link to our guests. They log in using their browser and away we go. Zencaster allows you to record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests and will never have a problem with recording an episode only to find that it didn't actually record ever again. With Zencaster's multi-layered backups, we always have the peace of mind that our recordings will exist no matter what. Yeah, no, you, you hit it right on the head, Dave. Zencaster is where it's at. So listen, friends, if you've ever thought about podcasting before and you realize that you are just overwhelmed because you need a lot of different tools or services, look no further than Zencaster. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcasting platform where you can create and produce your podcasts all in one place. And then through Zencaster, you can also distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and many other major podcasting destinations. And we've got a great deal for you to come and take advantage of all these easy-to-use tools that Zencaster has to offer. All you got to do is go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing and use our offer code, all one word, memory card lane, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I can't even stress to you how easy this platform is to work with. So if you've been looking for a new podcast host or even just looking for the tools to start your own podcast, don't wait. That's Zencaster.com forward slash pricing. Use our coupon code. You know it. You love it. It's our website too. All one word, memory card lane. They'll give you many new tools that you'll have at your disposal to bring your ideas back to the world. Now, speaking of bringing your ideas back to the world, Back there in 1987, Atlas was the other company vying for a license to make a video game based on Nishitani's first novel. And alongside Telnet, who had made the PC action RPG version, Atlas wanted to make one that was different. So they opted for a different style of gameplay. The PC-based version was a action RPG, and this was going to be anything but. So during the early stages of development, the gameplay concepts for this version of Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai closely resembled the style of the popular Wizardry series, which we've covered Wizardry before in a previous episode. It is one of the granddaddies of the role-playing genre. This similarity was attributed to Kazunari Suzuki, one of its creators, and it was because that... The people working on the game were huge fans of wizardry, but Suzuki was determined to include a unique feature in the game that would set it apart from wizardry. They didn't want it to be a complete wizardry clone. They wanted Digital Devil Story to have its own identity. And so in order to differentiate their game, they took the whole concept of summoning demons and they turned it into a concept which is basically a demon negotiation system. This system allows players to engage in conversations, 
and interactions with various demons they encounter throughout the game. So rather than just defeating or avoiding demons, players could choose an option to negotiate with them. They could try to persuade them to their side, or they could try to get valuable information out of them, which is pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it's definitely a neat concept and a change up from what they were doing. Now, according to interviews uh, by some of the key figures in development of the series, the concept of demon negotiation, demon negotiation was decided on pretty, pretty early in the game's development. Um, so this was this is not something that they just tagged on after the fact. This was something that that they always thought of. They felt that this added a layer of strategic depth and you know allowed the player to have more control over the way they play the game because the outcome of these negotiations really depended on the player's choices and abilities so that they could understand and navigate the motivations and desires of all the different demons that they encountered. But during the development of this digital devil story game, the team faced several other challenges and limitations. One of these challenges was that Kuji Okada, one of the game's creators was very critical of the first person exploration in the game. He expressed his dissatisfaction with the first person exploration stating that despite their best efforts, all it amounted to were extensive, winding, labyrinth dungeons. And it made him and the team feel like the gameplay lacked variety or engaging elements uh, that weren't part of this dungeon. So, you know, basically, they're making this game and one of its creators is, is being critical for it. But... That's kind of part for, you know, we talk about this with a lot of games. That's because there were technological limitations, right? Yeah, no, we definitely talked about that in the past. And, uh, you know, some people were able to create new ways of doing things to make the most use out of that space. Right. So storage space on the game cartridges, always an issue. These early games, game developers, good game developers had to find creative ways to work within these constraints. One key figure in the development of the game, Kazunari Suzuki, he basically did so. He he did just that. He he employed some unknown programming tricks and that allowed them to include high quality sprite graphics on the cartridges. And then to his credit to Nishitani, the author of the books, he was very much involved in the planning of the game. He actively contributed to to the the ideas and to the concepts throughout the development process, which was very crucial when they came up against these limitations because the storage limitations affected them in another way. They struggled to faithfully adapt the novel's plot to fit within the constraints of the limited storage space they had. So they had to strike a balance between maintaining the essence of the story and creating an engaging gameplay experience with all these hardware and hardware limitations, you know, particularly when it came to the storage. So they had to make difficult decisions about which part of the novel's plot to include and which non-essential elements they had to cut out. So as a result, they basically, they pick and chose with Nishitani's help. Like what are the key moments that have to be in the game 
and what can we cut out? But even still, even later on, there is criticism for some things they cut out. So, for instance, uh, one of the things that didn't make it into the game itself was the fact that in the books, the main protagonist has very questionable morality, and you don't see this at all in the video game. I would beg to argue a little bit that's because of player agency. When you move a concept over to a video game and you become the main protagonist, then some of that questionable morality falls in your hands. Does that make sense? No, it does. It definitely shifts the way that you interpret it. But with that being said, I don't think that they had the technical know-how to program questionable morality into a game you know nowadays we have gaming systems where you can be a bad guy or a good guy and that really wasn't the case way back when and then the involvement of namco uh namco ended up publishing the game atlas is just a developer namco is involved they played a really crucial role in its release you know the game has really mature character designs and the the one of the main reasons why this is this book series has never made it over to the states and these early games as a as a side note the early Megami Tensai games didn't make it to the states either is because they have a very heavy religious themes in the stories and that was largely seen as a no-no by western audiences i mean i kind of think that's still the case in some ways since we have this whole resurgence of Christian nationalism. Because of all the maturity in it, if they hadn't had Namco as a partner, then they wouldn't have been able to basically make the game the way they wanted. You know, the mature nature of the game's content, the exploration of religious themes, they made the game a very risky proposition. I mean, in hindsight, it's no surprise that Nintendo would pass on it, you know? I mean, given the time, absolutely. But Namco helped, and everyone worked together to push it happen, and Atlas's version of Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai was published by Namco on September 11th, 1987, for the Nintendo Famicom. It was made its way to the the Nintendo system. It just didn't get... uh, published by Nintendo themselves. So what is this version of the game? The Famicom version of digital devil story Megami Tensai is a very traditional role-playing video game in which players take control of a party composed of two humans and a number of demons. You explore a large dungeon. It takes place from the first person perspective, the human Characters use a variety of weapons and items, such as swords, guns, that kind of stuff. You pick up items from their healing items. There are money that you can use to purchase weapons and accessories from different shops. The game is saved with a password system, so it wasn't it wasn't just uh, you know turn the game off and you're screwed. Battles are turn based. It has random encounters that take place in the dungeons. And at the end of a battle, if you win, you get experience points, money, and items. Experience points are then used, your levels are raised, and then you could raise like your strength, your um, your intelligence, your attack. It's a very traditional role-playing game. The uniqueness of it, 
that has stood the test of time is that demon negotiation system. During battles, you can try to persuade enemy demons to join yourself. You can exchange money, items, or other things with them, and, and you can persuade them to join them. And then you can keep seven different demons at one time. Four of them can be summoned in the battle with you, and then basically they're just other characters in your party um, that have their own physical and magic attacks. One really cool thing is that the demon's attitude towards the players are governed by the phases of the moon. There are eight phases of the moon in the game from new to full. And some demons are more inclined to join you during one phase than the other. So there was a bit of strategy to it. The demons themselves don't level up, but you can create stronger demons by there were like shrines in the game. And you could go to a shrine and fuse uh, two of your demons together to make a new one. So isn't that kind of like Pokemon? Um, not really with fusion so much. It's that was more of an evolution system with fusion. I mean, although temporary, I'd say it's more of like a Yu-Gi-Oh thing because you fuse two monsters to create an even stronger monster. Um, but that's not a permanent thing. So I'm trying to think if there's anything I know that you do that where it's a permanent change. You know, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. But I don't know. I kind of thought Pokemon at some point when you were talking about like the random encounters in the uh, the caves and things or the dungeon rather. Um, and was wondering if it was more on that, like, would you be able to see it? Like, it's obviously random, but like, is it random what enemies generate and you can see them? Or is it just you're walking along and boom, you're hit with something and you're in a battle now? I will admit I didn't watch this to know. I'm, gotcha. I'm not I'm not entirely sure if you if you see them or not. That's um, that's interesting. Let's see. And we're walking and we're walking and we're walking. Still don't see any enemies. All you see are walls, walls, walls. I see the face of the moon in the corner. So that's kind of cool. Walls turn. We're turning. Still nothing but walls and ways to go. Let's see. We're going to keep watching this until a battle pops up. Oh, nope. He tried to walk into a wall and the word smack came up. That was pretty funny. Okay, we're turning. Oops, smack. That's a wall. Okay. And we're going. Still don't see any enemies. Don't see anything. Okay, we're going to fast forward this a little bit. And... Oop. I am known as the stage. He found a sage. Let me tell you the password. Oh, he just found the password. Okay, okay. I don't think... I, I haven't even seen a battle pop up. All right, we just got warned not to go downstairs because there's creatures past the stairs, and we went down the stairs anyway. So now we're going to find out if. Uh, now we're going to find out if creatures. I, you don't even really see, like, the people you go talk to. It's like you turn into a room and suddenly they appear and they talk to you. Okay, gotcha. So, so I don't think that it, it seems to be random encounters completely and utterly. But I haven't seen a battle pop up yet. I want to see a battle pop up. Come on. Come on, battle. It's a bunch of don't use the stairs. I see those are stairs. Great. Go into there. Battle. 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 Oop. So we didn't see it like as you're going down the hallway. It like 
you walked into a spot and then it did like a flash and then the battle opened up. So no, you don't get to see the enemies. It's it's random. So so it's akin to the old school Pokemon caves where you're just going along or even I guess the grass, just you're walking along and boom, battle. You have no clue what's coming. That's it. That seems to be the case. Seems to absolutely be the case. Past that, it's a pretty standard, it looks like a pretty standard uh, pink blooper. Yep. Cool beans. The coolest of the beans. The coolest of the beans. The coolest of the beans. So what 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 became of uh, these games, Dave? What's what's the legacy? Because obviously it's not something I'm familiar with. So I'm just curious. Have they continued making them? Are they still widely popular? What's what's yeah, the so so this first one was very popular uh, following its success. Atlas decided to create a sequel. Instead of adapting Nishitani's work, they created an original story, had its own narrative and re- and refined gameplay. That would be Digital Devil Story Megami Tensai 2. Uh, while the original game used the first-person viewpoint perspective for the entire game, Megami Tensai 2 used an overhead view for navigation and then switched to first-person for combat. And this was done because a lot of people complained that it was really easy to get lost in the labyrinth maze of the first one. So they switched up the, the, the way it looks, which makes sense. Following the release of Megami Tensai 2, Atlas acquired the rights to both develop and publish all further Megami Tensai titles. They wanted to make a new Megami Tensai with their brand on it, you know, because the first couple were Atlas Namco, so they wanted it to be an Atlas game. So they decided they were going to create a new entry for the Super Famicom. It's about where this time is now. And what they did for it is they partially remade the story of Megami Tensai 2, but they expanded on it and expanded the gameplay systems. They basically, now that they were on the Super Nintendo and they owned the complete rights to the game, they basically said, this is the story we wanted to tell and how we wanted to tell it. So this is how we're doing it for our first game. Um, and this is called Shin Megami Tensai. This uses first person navigation of dungeons and it's got turn based battles against demons. And again, you can recruit demons by talking to them. You can fuse demons together. Uh, and this one follows a player. Your prota- The protagonist lives in tokyo now around the time that the middle of the series the mid 90s was out nishitani was interviewed to talk about how how he liked the video games because it was about this time that he stopped being involved with the series and he said i went from being a creator to a player so i may have created the digital devil story but i'm not the one who's in charge of it anymore but he said that shin megami tensai was one of his favorite games in the series And how he said it, and I quote, I really love settings where normal life undergoes a huge change. There are a few exceptions, but I think that Shin Megami Tensai might be the first hit RPG in Japan where the story starts in the normal everyday life. So kind of cool. They never really stopped being popular. So in 1994, they created a sequel to that uh, for the Super Famicom Shin Megami Tensai 2. Uh, it was basically a completely different story, continued to be popular. So they started making various spinoffs. So in late 1994, there was Shin Megami Tensei If, 
it was developed to be different from previous games in that it focuses on a small scale environment and not a large scale one. So instead of all of Tokyo, this one specifically takes place in a, a high school and five towers related to these, these seven deadly sins. Now that was incredibly popular. The high school setting of Shin Megami Tensei If was received incredibly well. And so Atlas then decided that they wanted to create a dedicated sub-series that focused on the inner struggles of young adults. This concept eventually became a game called Revelations Persona, which is the beginning of the Persona series. Which, I would argue, is how Western audiences probably best know the Megami Tensai series today. And that, I can say, is something that I am familiar with. I have knowledge of Persona, not very much. It's just, I have friends that have played several of the games and talk about it all the time, but I would never have known that these are one and the same. Now, I I think I'm, I like Persona. I'm a fan of that series. I didn't want to dive too much further into its history because I would like to leave the door open for us to do a Persona episode someday. But yes, uh, it started off as a spinoff from the Shin Megami Tensei If, became Revelations Persona. There was another spinoff from the Shin Megami Tensei If uh, called Shin Megami Tensei Devil Summoner. That's another spinoff series. The Devil Summoner series plays off elements of detective fiction. Devil Summoner was actually the first Megami Tensei title to be released on a 32-bit 5th generation uh, console, which was the Sega Saturn. It was also the first Megami Tensei game to feature 3D graphics. That came out in Christmas of 1995. The series have all continued from there. Between the three of those series, the Megami Tensei series is still going strong to this day. In fact, I think between it Megami Tensai and all of its spinoffs, it, they've sold something like 35 million copies of games. In the main series, Shin Megami Tensai 5 came out in 2021 for the Switch. It rates moderately well. I looked it up 84 uh, out of 100 on Metacritic. The Devil Summoner series is probably the least known of the group. They are known now as Soul Hackers. If you ever see a game called Soul Hackers, that is the Devil Summoner series. Soul Hackers 2 was released in 2022. It's really the mediocre series of the bunch. Its Metacritic score is 77 out of 100. And then we have the one that we know, Persona 5 and its various incarnations. Uh, the game itself, its latest version, Persona 5 Royale, rated a 95 out of 100 so it's incredibly well received it was one of the best rated games of the year it came out they are working on persona 5 tactica which is a role-playing tactical strategy game which is, comes out in november of this year and they recently announced a remake of persona 3 which is persona 3 reload which should come out sometime next year so this series is going strong I myself have played Persona 5 Royale. They are fantastic games. I think that the devil summoning concept is very unique and great. And this game plays a lot on like the concept of like your, your soul and your id and your inner emotions and how they play against one another. And it's really fascinating. And I think it does a fantastic job at all of it. 
I've I've played which one have I played? I have rail. No, I was <laughs> uh hold that thought for one second. No, I played one of the other Shin Megami Ten size. I think it's three Nocturne. I think it's either two or three. Um, I never could get into it. I never finished it. I have it around here somewhere. I actually borrowed it from someone and never returned it. And I feel guilty about it. I don't even know if they remember. Oops. Hey, yeah. there's still time. There is still time. I'm, I, 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 I've had Kiefer's copy of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time for DS or 3DS rather since he graduated from Central. So, nice. uh, yeah, that's that's like six years now, I think. So as long as you both remember, you can always get it back to him. Just make sure it's in the condition that you received it. I mean, I take care of my games. Everyone knows that. So, but um, yeah, so I mean, I've known, I mean, that one, I would have PlayStation 2 era. So I would have been in college when that one was loaned to me, 2000, early 2000s. So to be fair, I mean, I've known about this series for 20 years. I only got into Persona recently. I didn't know about the connection until recently either, but it's easy to see. And, and I do recommend Persona. Just be prepared for a lot. Uh, all the Persona games are like over 100 hour games. They're fantastic. So they're definitely an investment. But yeah, it all started with a trilogy of science fiction thriller horror books. It weren't even books. It was originally public, like serialized in a magazine and then it was, you know, taken. It was so popular that it was taken from a magazine and turned into novels. I mean, so it's really just a series of, of magazine stories from the eighties that have turned into a. I I would argue that this is one of the bigger Japanese series that has crossed over Persona nowadays. Although I nah, because anything, because you can say that about anything Nintendo, can't you? Uh, I mean, not anything, but a very, very large amount of Nintendo being nah. that they are a Japanese company. Yeah. No, I mean, anything Nintendo. I mean, Zelda, Zelda would beat the pants off of this, for instance. So, yeah, as you know, Mario and I know, I know Pokemon and Final Fantasy. OK, well, this is down the list, but it's 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 one, it, in terms of how it rates. I mean, Persona 5 rated well and Persona 5 Royale rated better. They're some of the highest rated games that are released when they come out. So no denying that they are fantastic games from what everyone has said. But they're not for everyone because there's not a lot of people that are still into traditional role playing. And they're very much like turn based traditional role playing games, which is also what makes them cool. Because, again, there's not a lot about that. We had Final Fantasy as that for years. But now Final Fantasy is very distinctly in the action role playing game category. In fact, they leaned Final Fantasy 16 came out and they lean very heavily into action role playing. I mean, that's that's their thing now. That's where they're going. So we don't have as many turn based role playing series anymore. No, they definitely do not. And that's uh, for those who like more casual RPGs. That's kind of a blow. Yep. So what else did we talk about in this one? There really wasn't other. We've talked about Atlas before. No, I don't think we talked about Atlas before. No, nope, we talked doesn't. about we talked about Sega before, though. A little bit, yeah, here and there. Um, no, we and... talked about the history of Sega when we did Sonic, which was pretty cool. Which was an old episode. 
And of course, if you want to check out old episodes, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people do on our website? Well, Dave, on our website can be found a calendar of both previous and future episodes, maybe on some upcoming ones. You can share a little bit of your own knowledge or your personal insight into the game and how it affected you. Be pretty cool to know that. You can find links to things such as our Discord, where you can chat with Dave and I about episodes or games or, you know, just whatever you have on your mind that you really want to talk about. You know, we're here. We're uh, ready to make friends. So come on, join us over there. You can also find links to our social media where I can be found on various platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. What about yourself? I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. I would also like to say that we finally have Patreon subscribers. Uh, I stopped focusing on Patreon and someone just kicked me in the butt and said, I'm going to subscribe to your Patreon and make you focus on Patreon. So Thanks, and um, join our Patreon. You can find a link on our website. It's $1 or $2 a month to help support this podcast. Right now, it's to help support this podcast, but if you give me some great ideas for content you would like to see, we will gladly put the time and effort into it. Yeah, so if you like hearing un- unedited episodes where Rob and Dave do the research mid-episode, or Rob gives Dave something fun to have to record out of or edit out of the recording... That's the place to check it out. Oh, you want me to put unedited episodes in there? That's a good idea. I think we should do that, which <laughs> will be a lot of the same content, but you might get a little bit of tidbits of fun things. So check it out. If it's something you want to do and you want to help support us, we would greatly appreciate it. But no pressure because, hey, we know there's other things out there and we're OK with that. We do this because we love it. Very true. Each week, we tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history this week. We learned all about Digital Devil Story, Megami Tensai, the origins of the Shin Megami Tensai series, Persona, Devil Summoner. It's the basis for a lot of things. We love bringing these stories to you each week because as we do our research to tell you a new story, we inevitably learn new things that we never learned before. And then in turn, we get to take all these new things that we learn and we get to teach them to you. And it's this beautiful cycle that is very fun of teaching and learning and learning and teaching and so on and so forth. So in recognition of the fantastic cycle and how much we learn and love learning, we like to go around and talk about what we take away from every story each week. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I definitely learned all about the series that Shinigami Tensai, um, and all of that, I think that one of the recurring themes that I'm loving to see with all of these old games is, A, the inspiration from H.P. Lovecraft for anything horror-based, which makes perfect sense because, you know, he's a, uh, a founding person with the, uh, the modern horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just continuing to see that even during these times when technology was the limitation, that people were able to come up with creative ways to get around it, the use of the high quality sprites for this game um it's a perfect example of that and we see it in multiple things and it's just it's a crazy to see how things were different back then because now i'd argue that we have the technology that our limitation is our creativity and who knows how long it's going to be until we can come up with something that our modern storage and memory capabilities are not able to to sustain very true so that's a very good point it's just it's incredible to see the difference in time and you know it's just uh 
technology is a crazy thing, man. And these, every time we talk about these, we just see it more and more. So that's it for me. What about yourself? I learned where this series came from, from Aya Nishitani's novels. I found some new books I want to read, which is always fun for me because they did some, some fans took the time to translate these books into English. So yay. I put them on my list. We're going to read those. And I want to check out uh, the other sci-fi author, Ruhaya Hanamura. So my favorite takeaways, I got some new authors to check out. That's always a win in my book. So, Because um, storytelling is my favorite part of all this, right? I do it through history, but I enjoy the stories that all these video game creators tell too. That's always, the storytelling has always been my favorite part of video games. So that's it. That's my favorite part. Absolutely. And it's a great part to be into. Fantastic. All right, Rob. Well, before I take it out of here, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, just got to take a quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. It means the world to us. And we hope that we bring a little less boredom to your life on whatever day of the week you decide to listen to us. That is very true. Well, on that note, Rob, you know, in the past, we've looked at various consoles like the Odyssey, which was the very first console ever, the Fair Channel, uh, Fairchild Channel F, which was the first console to use cartridges. And just recently, we covered Nintendo's first home console, the Color TV game. Uh, next week, we're going to be telling everyone the story of another first console, but this time, It'll be the first console of one of Nintendo's biggest competitors through the early generations of gaming. In fact, this console belongs to the third generation of consoles. Ooh. Do you know which one it is? Do you know which you one know, it is? You know, I, I couldn't tell you, Dave. Who, uh, who, who was one of Nintendo's biggest competitors back when? Well, obviously PlayStation has always been up there. But what about before I, that? I would have to say before that. It was Atari. <laughs> Just kidding. It's Sega, Dave. Come on. It's Sega. Sega and Nintendo. So the SG-1000 was Sega's first foray into the home console market. And we're going to tell you all about it because I'm betting money that a bunch of you have never heard of the SG-1000. Like Rob. Like Rob. So stick around and join us as we visit yet another beginning on next week's trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Doobin doobin bop bop noodoo moodoo.